Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Okay, so we are back for a long overdue, I would say, COVID-19 update. Today is July 15th, 2020, and we took a little break because, to be honest, I needed a little break from everything, from social media, from work, and so we took full two weeks off, but we are back, and we'll make sure that we provide these updates. So I think the biggest thing, Dr. Dean, is the huge increase in cases that we've seen since we last recorded. Right. So when we first started um, with coronavirus in the U.S., we had a lot of lockdowns and social distancing, and we really did flatten the curve. And then really since the end of May, with a lot of the social distancing easing, we've had uh, an increase in the number of cases, especially in the western and southern states. Yeah, so as a lot of you know, we record in California. We're definitely seeing a surge here for the United States. There's over 3 million cases. We're over, I think, 135,000 deaths. Of course, Dr. Dean, correct me if I'm wrong with any of these numbers. I know you're the expert. (laughs) But do you think that all of this increase really just was from easing the social distancing restrictions, people getting together more, dine-in, restaurants opening, gyms opening, protests? It really correlates well with the easing of the social distancing um, guidance that we've had. And so we can really see that, that it occurs about two weeks after the easing of social distancing. You start seeing the increase in the number of cases, and that correlates well with the known incubation period, that it takes one to two weeks after exposure to become infected. And I think in different locations, there's different reasons for the increase. In California, where they've done some contact tracing, it's the majority of cases have been related to indoor transmission. And that's in um, bars um, where people aren't wearing masks because they're drinking and it's an enclosed space and they might be close together, uh, needing to shout or raise their voice to be heard because it's noisy, or indoor gatherings at people's homes. And it looks like the protests have had very little effect. Those were generally outdoors, and a lot of people were wearing masks. And, of course, the volume of air outdoors is basically infinite, so it dilutes the virus. Okay, well, that's good to know. So many areas now, including here in California, they're kind of pulling back on the reopening. So Mm -hmm. closing gyms, closing restaurants. Do we think that that will still be as effective at working to, again, like flatten this curve that we've created? Or... Is it kind of going to snowball from here? Well, I think part of the reason with the closing down is to get people to take it seriously. I think a lot of people, once they heard that things were opening up, they felt it was kind of like a zero or one phenomenon. Like, oh, things are opening up, so it's over. So I can just like go over to my friend's house and goof around and return to socializing. So I think the message that's being sent is it's not over. We're still in the midst of this. We're having increasing rates of hospitalization, increasing rates of ICU admission. And if this continues along the same path, then what we're going to have is we're going to have hospital capacity filled. And we want to make sure that we can take care of every patient if they need to be taken care of. We need that capacity to remain in place. 
Right. And that was always the discussion from the very beginning, really, as one of the main drivers of why we've mm-hmm. been doing all of this, of course. So I think that the next obvious conversation topic is schools and daycares. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know about you, but this is like basically every question I get asked about coronavirus. Should mm-hmm. I be putting my kid back in daycare? Should I pull him out now? Should I like what's going to happen with school in the fall? So it seems contradictory in a way, doesn't it? Because we're talking about we need to take this very seriously. We need to continue to social distance. But hey, let's talk about opening schools and having kids all be together and potentially transmit and then bring it back home. Right. right. So that, like, why are we having these conversations at the same time? <laughs> right. And parents are really pulling their hair out, thinking that like they're going to be the ones that have to make this really tough decision for their child, which we can talk a little bit more about. But Mm There have been varying plans um, that I've heard in the news. I know Los Angeles and San Diego Unified School Districts, which are here in California, are planning to continue distance learning in the fall. Mm -hmm. Um, Some other schools or parents that I've talked to say their program is just like deciding on maybe a staggered model where the kids would be there for two days a week and distance learn from the others. And then half of the school would go on those other days that they weren't there. So what kind of metrics are public health officials using and parents about how we can determine if kids can go back to school safely? Like, is there data behind it? What are we looking at? Yeah. So first of all, some of this is driven by our society, our professional society, the American Academy of Pediatrics. And what they've stated is that we need to consider kids going back to school. Um, And so we need to start planning that and considering policy. And probably the first place to start is you're not going to want to do that in the setting of increasing community transmission. So you're going to want to make sure that you have a handle on community transmission, that it's not increasing, that hospitals aren't getting close to capacity, that you're not having a big surge, but things are relatively under control. So I think that's the place to start from. Mm -hmm. Okay. And a lot of families are concerned about their child obviously becoming infected. I know that we've talked a lot about how this virus doesn't seem to be as severe in kids, but they're also worried about their child being a carrier of this. So they go to school or they go to daycare and they come home and they potentially expose someone else that's high risk. So what kind of data that's emerged since some of our other updates are there about how likely they are to be infected or infectious to others? So we know that if children are exposed to somebody who's infected, they are 50% less likely to get infected compared to an adult. Hmm. So children are not driving this. If children are infected, um, if they do get infected, then they're less likely to be symptomatic and they're less likely to transmit to others compared to an adult. Right, because they're not coughing, sneezing. Exactly. They're not producing those droplets. So you can transmit it and be asymptomatic, um, but it's more common to transmit it when you are symptomatic. That's going to result in more transmission. Mm -hmm. So uh, children are not driving the transmission, and that's different than many other infections. We know, for example, with um, influenza or with pneumococcal disease, for example, if you just vaccinate and protect children, you will decrease the rates in adults of Mm -hmm. transmission. So children seem to drive transmission of those pathogens. This is different. This is primarily driven by transmission among adults, and kids are more secondary bystanders. 
Have there been any studies in other countries where schools are beginning to reopen to see if once that happens, the community rates go up that you're aware of? There's been a few studies, but it's very difficult to compare them because they've been done in countries that have had different transmission patterns than in the U.S., like in Denmark and in Iceland um, and other areas. So it's very difficult. But what we do have is we do have past experience with SARS-1 in 2003, 2004, and they found that school closures um, at that time had a really small impact on transmission Okay. Well, those are all good things to keep in mind as we consider this. And so let's say that we get to a place within the community where the numbers are not increasing, we're not reaching hospital capacity, we reflatten this curve, at least here in California, where it's continuing to rise. And then it's Mm -hmm. determined by a group of school leaders and public health officials and educators that they are going to reopen schools in some capacity. What can parents expect that to look like? We've talked about some of the potential models with like a couple days on and Mm -hmm. a couple days off. Are there any other plans that you're aware of? Well, I would look at it as slowly getting back to school. So you wouldn't want to just all of a sudden say, okay, let's go back to school the way it was last year where kids are going five days a week all day and having recess and eating lunch all in the the cafeteria together. So it's not going to be that. So you'd hope that schools approach this very cautiously and kind of ease into it. So a common way to think about this is maybe what you would do is start school with two half days a week. That automatically decreases the the concentration of students by a quarter. Um, So if there's two half days a week and the schools are in smaller class sizes and they're cohorted, they're just in one classroom and they don't go in between different classrooms, um, and then you see how that goes. Um, along with all the other measures that are going on at at school. You see if there is um, increased transmission in the community. You see if there are outbreaks at school. And if there's not, after one to two incubation periods, two to four weeks, maybe you start increasing um, school attendance more. So some sort of hybrid of the distance learning model plus attending school and then gradually ramping up the in-school presence as as, um, conditions allow. Right. And when you said other measures that the schools will be doing, that's going to be most likely children wearing masks, um, as well as the teachers wearing masks, frequent hand washing, probably going to have to hire a whole lot of more like janitorial staff and mm-hmm. people to make sure that the the classrooms are clean. And so there will be, you know, possibly face shields as well. I've seen a lot of more daycares starting to implement those. And that's, again, because that it can be transmitted if you touch your um, eye. Mm -hmm. So once kids start to go back, um, I've gotten some questions about some kids being considered higher risk. So Mm -hmm. when should a child be considered high risk or teacher, for example, um, you know, some of the teachers in that elderly, more high risk population may not may not want to go back. Maybe they want to help with the distance learning and some of the younger, you know, extremely healthy teachers would go back to in-person learning. What are your thoughts about this? Well, I think you've articulated it really perfectly that for the teachers, that's exactly how I would consider it, that hopefully for those teachers who are at higher risk for severe disease due to underlying conditions or their age, um, that there would be opportunities for them to concentrate more on the distance learning to decrease their risk of infection. 
And the same would go for families, um, and it would depend on their individual circumstances. So if the child has an underlying condition like diabetes or asthma that makes them at higher risk for severe disease, or somebody in the family does, or it's a multi-generational household with grandma or great-grandma at home who's at high risk for disease, those families might want to opt more for distance learning rather than having their kids go to school. It's going to be a very individual um, decision by teachers and by family. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like with all of these conversations I've been having with people over the last month about daycare and school, I wish I had like the answer, like, yes, you should do this or you should do this, but it's such an individual decision and everyone's home situation is unique and everyone's work situation is unique and every child is unique. Like some kids can sit at a computer and very well do distance learning and other kids are like balls of energy and the parents are like, I cannot get them to sit in front of this computer for the life of me. So it really needs to be a conversation between your immediate family, so the parents, your teachers, your pediatrician. We are happy to be a part of this conversation, but make sure you're making the best decision for your family and and the community, of course, and your child. Right. And then I guess the other thing that goes into it is every every family, every parent has a different um, assessment of risk and tolerance of, of risk also. So, you know, when parents come to me, it'd be easy for me to to use my values and say, here's what you should do. But I think what's most important is for parents to know what their values are and and be able to make a risk assessment. And I'm happy to, like, walk them through that. Um, But it's really, it's their decision. Totally. And it's important to remember that this should not be political in any way, right? It's a community health virus. You know, sometimes we see leadings one way or the other, but really what it is is it's a community risk and we should all be in this together. Leaving politics aside, although of course very difficult in this situation sometimes. Right. I, I think a positive that could come out of all these conversations is that it what it does show is that parents really value schools. They value oh, yeah. teachers, administrators, librarians, parents, our communities, our society. We love school. It's so important <laughs> for kids. And and so I think that's like a positive thing that we should all take out, out of this is that we want kids to go to school. We really value them. We want it to work right. And we just need to figure out how to make that happen in, in the correct way so that we get all the value from school without increasing risk. Right. So I'm just going to leave it with the American Academy of Pediatrics statement that they released last week sometime, which Dr. Dean referenced in the beginning. And instead of paraphrasing it, I'll just read an excerpt um, so that you can hear. So what the American Academy of Pediatrics said, which as we've referenced them multiple times throughout the podcast, it's really our um, governing organization in pediatrics. They said schools are fundamental to child and adolescent development and well-being and provide our children and adolescents with academic instruction, social and emotional skills, safety, reliable nutrition, physical speech and mental health therapies, opportunities for physical activity, and many other benefits. The AAP strongly advocates that all policy considerations for the coming year start with the goal of having students physically present in school. But then they also put a caveat on this, which we've discussed. They said, however, local school leaders, public health experts, educators, parents have to be at the center of decisions about how and when to reopen schools. 
talk, uh, taking into account the spread of COVID-19 in their communities and the capacities for schools to adapt safety protocols to make in-person learning safe and feasible, and that a one-size-fits-all approach is not appropriate for return-to-school decisions. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really nicely said. It really summarizes, like you said, all of the things we love about school. And as pediatricians are really hurting that kids can't be in school, you know, mm-hmm. all of the therapies that are missed out on and, and you know, reliable nutrition for people that may not have access to that. But, you know, we are in, I hate to use this word, unprecedented times. Mm-hmm. We are. And we really are. And, and, and so I like that one size fits all is not going to work for every community because it's just, just so different in every community and every family. Mm-hmm. And we can even see this in some school districts that are like right next to each other, that for one school district, they might have more resources than another school district, and they might have a physical layout that is more amenable to kids coming back to school than others. So there's going to be really different decisions um, and, and, and in school districts that are like right next to each other, just like a block or a mile away. Definitely. So please reach out to us and let us know what your plans are, your school plans are for the upcoming year. And feel free to reach out with any questions. Of course, like we mentioned, we don't have all the answers, but we're happy to help guide your decisions as best we can. And then we will come back and do an update relatively soon. We can talk more about how much longer this will go on, transmission, and all of those things. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 